All right. Uh, good morning, everyone. Wow, so great to see uh, so so many of you here. Uh, it's a joy to be with you. Um, you know, this is my first time preaching here at Living Hope, um, but um, it already feels like home because um, I have several family members who attend this church. Um, you know, a lot of old pastors of mine are pastors here now, and a lot of dear friends uh, that I've been seeing um, here and there throughout the day. And so, uh, thank you for having me. Um, I think it's great that you guys do this com- uh, this com- uh, series on real conversations every year. Um, I personally think it's about time the church start talking about things people are actually talking about. Because um, if we're not talking about it in the church, uh, we're going to be talking about it somewhere else. Uh, at work, at school, or on Twitter. And uh, believe it or not, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about a lot of the things we're wrestling with right now in our culture. I think a lot of times we think the Bible is outdated and culturally irrelevant. Uh, But I can tell you that anyone who says that has not read the Bible because um, we are still wrestling uh, as a people with the same things we've been wrestling uh, with for centuries. And so, Uh, I'm excited to kick off this series uh, on deconstruction. I can tell you in my particular context, uh, I pastor in Los Angeles, that where I think is kind of like the center of all the deconstruction that's happening, partly because uh, we're really close to Hollywood and we're really at, uh, you know, in the cultural hub of the world. And uh, it seems like every day these days, um, I'm having conversations with people from our church who tell me that they're deconstructing their faith that they're having some kind of crisis of what they believe. Uh, you know, and, and in some sense, it makes sense, especially after a year like 2020, uh, you had a global pandemic, uh, social isolation, unemployment, racial, political division. I mean, if there were ever a time that was a breeding ground to have an existential crisis of faith, I would say that time is now. It would almost be weird if you were here today and you hadn't at least at some point during the past 20 months, at some point asked yourself, huh, like what is it uh, that I really believe here? You uh, You know, do I really believe in God? Is God really real? Is God actually good? And You know, in some sense, um, you know, all of us have been through a collective trauma together. Um, you know, let's just call it what it is. Uh, we are all trauma survivors in this room. And, and having counseled many people who've experienced trauma in their lives, I can tell you that post-trauma, a lot of times how they feel like is that they, they feel like the ground is falling out underneath them. They feel like their world is imploding. They're questioning everything they've been taught to believe is true. And today in the story we're looking at, we're looking at a familiar story in Luke 24 about two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. And we find ourselves smack dab in the middle of post-traumatic doubt and deconstruction. Okay, and this is where we're going to pick up here. And uh, if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me um, to Luke chapter 24, we're looking at verses 13 to 35. If you can choose your translation Uh, We're going to be looking at the English Standard Version. Okay, Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. And, you know, before we start reading, I just want to say, you know, a lot of times we we think about the death and resurrection of Christ as this super celebratory, triumphant moment, because we're on this side of history. Um, But you have to understand that for the disciples, this was the most traumatic weekend of their entire lives. They'd witnessed a betrayal, an arrest, 
an unjust trial, and then they watched their best friend and teacher be hung on a cross and be brutally executed in the most horrible way. I mean, this is before they had therapy, before they had counseling services. And so you can just imagine how emotionally spent, how overwhelmed, how exhausted, how disillusioned these disciples were as they're trying to process all of this that's happened. And this is where we're picking up in Luke chapter 24, verse 13. This is the reading of God's word. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a, a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our uh, company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn with us uh, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose at same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what, what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Amen. Uh, you know, this passage has always fascinated me uh, partly because of its placement in the gospel, okay? You have to understand that at the beginning of Luke 24, you have this grand announcement that the tomb is empty, that Jesus is risen, okay? And then literally just a few verses later, you get this peculiar story about these two men walking away from Jerusalem, downcast, fearful, disillusioned. Very strange, okay, because if I were God and I were writing a, a book about myself, there is no way I'm including this story in that book. It would be very anticlimactic, right? Like if, if I were to preach today and all of you left here fearful, disillusioned, and overwhelmed, exhausted, uh, Pastor Steve would never invite me back here, okay? And yet this is what we see here. You have this moment on which all of Christianity hinges the resurrection, and then just a few verses later, you have two people who presumably spend every waking moment with the Messiah in the flesh questioning everything. 
And the, there's a part of you that has to wonder, could it be then that maybe doubt is not something we need, to be, we need to avoid as followers of Jesus. Could it be that maybe doubt is something to be embraced? Maybe doubt and deconstruction are things we need to walk through in order to get to Jesus. Could it be that maybe doubt doesn't separate us from God? Maybe doubt is the very place where God meets us. Um, you know, Richard Rohr, he's a theologian and a famous author, and he describes a person's journey of faith in three stages. He says everyone goes through these stages, construction, deconstruction, and then reconstruction. And he says you can't jump from construction to reconstruction without going through deconstruction, okay? Now, just real quickly, construction is basically the faith you were handed, okay? You didn't have any control over it. Uh, it was the faith that was packaged for you in a very specific way. Uh, a lot of our youth students who are joining us, college students, in some sense, you don't really have a choice to be here. You know, your parents brought you here, and in some sense, they are handing you a certain image of God, okay? Uh, the version of God I grew up with was a God who, for some reason, only showed up at 5 a.m. in the morning and only showed up on the last night of retreats. I don't know why. Interesting God, okay? Uh, the version of God I grew up with was a God who only cared about me and only did good things for me insofar as I gave my money and my time and my resources to him. The version of God I grew up with was a God who always voted Republican. It was a version of God uh, who hated secular music. Okay, I remember being at a retreat and we had a campfire and I had to burn all my secular CDs. And um, I'm so upset at my pastors to this day. Uh, if you're watching, I'm so upset at you. I want my CDs back. Um, but this is what happens, right? This is how our faith is constructed. Now, everyone at some point will go through something called deconstruction. And this is the moment when, because of something that happens in our lives, a lot of times it's a negative experience at church, Sometimes it's a challenging season we've had to walk through that forces us to re-examine the faith we've inherited. That makes us start asking some big what-if questions. What if God isn't who I've been taught he is? What if God doesn't even exist? What if God isn't good? And, and a lot of, you know, this word deconstruction, it's kind of a misleading term because sometimes it feels like it's this systematic, intellectual, thought-out process. But I can tell you, as, as someone who talks to people who are deconstructing on a daily basis, I can tell you it's not that at all. Deconstruction is often a very messy, disorienting process, like I said, where you just feel like everything that you've ever believed is, un, is under a microscope where you feel like the, the, you're standing on shaky ground and, and you don't know what to do with yourself. And a lot of times, I would say, you know, we think that these things are new phenomena, but I can tell you, people have been deconstructing their faith for as long as Christianity has been around, for as long as faith has been a thing, and these things are built into the story of Jesus. And we see this in Luke 24. If you listen to what the disciples are saying in verse 21, it says, we had hoped that he was the one who would redeem Israel. Notice the past tense there. We had hoped, meaning their hope was gone. 
meaning they watched this thing, this weekend unfold, and Jesus was nothing like they thought he was going to be. Everything they thought was going to happen didn't happen according to plan, and they don't know what to think anymore. We had hoped. And what these disciples don't realize is that this season or this moment of doubt and deconstruction is actually something they have to go through in order to get to the third stage, which we call reconstruction, which is the process of picking up all these pieces and rebuilding a more robust, a more holistic understanding of God that's able to hold conflicting truths in tension, that realizes that maybe the world isn't so black and white. Maybe we need to start looking at the world in shades of gray. Hey, maybe these things that feel like they're contradictory, maybe we can simply embrace the mystery and wonder of it all. And I know a lot of you here today are afraid of doubt and deconstruction. You're afraid that if you have these questions and if you're asking these questions about God that, oh my goodness, like I'm, I'm betraying my family. I'm betraying my parents. I'm, be, I'm betraying this church. I'm betraying the, the communities of faith that raised me. But, but I want to reassure you that a lot of this doubt and deconstruction is actually healthy and biblical. We would not be where we are today right, without the deconstruction of the prophets, the reformers, of courageous men and women throughout church history who had the guts to say, you know what, this thing that we associate with Jesus, I don't know if that's Jesus. You know, a lot of times we think when we're deconstructing that we're losing God. No, no, no. We're not losing God. We're losing the version of God we've inherited. We're losing the box we've put God in. And we're realizing that God is actually a lot bigger than that box. You know, uh, you know uh, there was a time not too long ago in our country's history when people were using the Bible to justify chattel slavery. It wasn't that long ago. And you needed someone, you needed Christians to stop and say, wait, wait a minute, hold up. What, what, what I'm saying here that you're saying is the will of God, this doesn't feel like the will of a God who created all human beings in his image. This can't be right. We needed someone to stop and deconstruct that. Jesus himself was always deconstructing the religious traditions and the religious norms of his day. Jesus himself was always calling out religious leaders for adding things to God's word. You know, when you read uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Right? There's this familiar pattern that Jesus takes. He says, you have heard it said, but I tell you. Construction, deconstruction. You have heard it said, this is what you've inherited, but I'm here to tell you something different. You have heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Right? You see what's happening there? Construction, deconstruction, and reconstruction. And the religious leaders of his day hated Jesus for this because they had God in a neat little box. God was a being that could be understood that was very black and white and Jesus came along and ruined it all for them. I mean, he was always messing with their, uh, he was always messing with them. You know, they would ask him questions like, Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Yes or no? Black and white. You know, it's in the Bible. Jesus wouldn't give them a yes or no answer. He would say, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit, would you not lift it up on the Sabbath? And they were like, what? 
what are you saying? They never understood what he was saying because Jesus would never allow them to put God in a box. Now, two quick caveats I do want to mention because, you know, some of you, I'm sure, are already starting to feel like, ooh, where is this sermon going? Because I'm already standing on shaky ground and I don't know if I can take, I can stomach any more of this. Two quick caveats. One thing you will notice when you watch Jesus in his life and ministry is that Jesus never deconstructs for the sake of deconstructing. You know, that's what we're seeing a lot of right now. People just deconstructing because that's something that everyone's doing. That's the in thing to do. You know, it's very in to decolonize your mind right now. Jesus always deconstructed for the purpose of getting to reconstruction. Because you see, if you just deconstruct and deconstruct and deconstruct, at the end, you will end up with a faith where you know exactly what you're against, but you have no idea what you're for. You will be defined by the things you hate, but you will have no idea what you're for. This is, I think, what we're seeing in a lot of second-generation Asian-American churches right now. In some sense, we deconstructed the faith that our parents handed to us, right? We, we looked at certain things and said, I don't know if that's biblical. I think that might be cultural. And so we organized our churches to be nothing like them. But right now, this is why after a year like 2020, you're seeing a lot of Asian-American churches having an identity crisis, because they know the kind of church they don't want to be, but they have no idea what kind of church they do want to be. And so I want to make that caveat there, okay? you got to deconstruct knowing that this is something you go through to get to reconstruction. Second caveat I want to mention is that Jesus never deconstructs the authority and the validity of God's word. He always deconstructs man's perversion of God's word. The way man has added things or altered things to God's word, Jesus never throws out God's word altogether. Even here, if you look at verse 27, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He doesn't throw out God's word. He says, look at it again. Look at it carefully let God's word reconstruct your image of God. Don't try to reconstruct an image of God on your own. Don't let culture reconstruct an image of God for you because I guarantee you what you will end up with is going to be just as limiting, just as, uh, just as confusing as the, as the God you started with. Let the word of God reconstruct your image because at the end of the day if you don't if you just deconstruct and deconstruct and you don't reconstruct with the word of god i guarantee you this will not transform you to look more like jesus it will transform jesus to look more like you you will have a god that you can stomach a god that allows you to have your cake and eat it too but at the end of the day it won't be god okay well then if that's the case how do we doubt in a way that draws us into Jesus, not away from him. How do we doubt in a healthy, productive way? And I'm going to give us three things that I think we see in this text. Number one, we doubt with curiosity. Doubt with curiosity. You know, sometimes, uh, especially when you're younger, uh, when you feel that doubt creeping in, when you feel those questions coming to your mind, uh, the tendency usually, especially if you've grown up in the church, is to suppress it. 
ooh, I don't, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole because I don't know what I'm going to find on the other side. I have these questions about God. God doesn't really make sense to me. I'm going to suppress it. Um, a, a few years ago, I, my younger brother, he took a um, 23andMe test. Okay? Uh, if you've never heard of 23andMe, it's this DNA test you can take. And uh, he got one for free. Um, you know, wasn't looking for anything mind-blowing. But he took the test, and I remember he calls me up, and he says, bro, um, it turns out I'm a third Japanese. And I was like, you're a third Japanese? What are you talking about? No, you're not. I was like, we're Korean. Uh, our parents were Korean. Our grandparents were Korean. And I was like, oh, no. What is going on here? And uh, he was like, yeah, so I'm a little scared. And so um, I'm going to need you, mom and dad, to take this test, too. And I was like, nah, I'm not going to take the test. Um, and he was like, why not? And I was like, I'm not going down that rabbit hole. And he was like, what do you mean? I was like, I don't really want to know, you know, if there was a disturbance in the force somewhere in the family tree. Um, you know, I've lived like 30-some years, you know, being pretty content, you know, knowing that I'm Korean-American. You know, I, I don't want to have a crisis right now in life. I, I, got, two, I got two young kids. You know, I, you know, they're Korean, okay? And, um, and, and all my friends were like, I'll pay for this test for you. Like, aren't you curious? And I was like, no, I'm not. And, and I feel like what's happening right now in our world today is actually a move away from curiosity and a move toward certainty. Because generally speaking, when the world gets scarier, when things feel like they're falling apart around us, we tend to move towards certainty. We want things that we can understand. We want to be right. We want to know. We want to have the right answers. We don't want to keep asking questions because that makes us feel really unstable. That makes us feel like we're standing on solid ground. Uh, standing on, on shaky ground, that is. Right? And yet when we see this passage, it's so interesting, right? Because that doesn't seem like the approach Jesus takes. You know, a lot of people, I think, we're convinced that uh, spiritual maturity equals certainty, right? We tend to platform uh, and praise leaders who are so sure of their convictions, that the surer you are of your convictions, the more mature you are in your faith. The more you know, the stronger you are in your faith. But I would argue that actually I think certainty is the opposite of faith. I think certainty is the opposite of faith because if we were certain about everything, we wouldn't need faith to begin with. In this sense, could it be that maybe maturity isn't having all the right answers? Could it be that maybe spiritual maturity is having the humility to admit you don't have all the answers, that you don't know. I wish more leaders today would say, I don't know either. Let's look it up together. And this is what we see here. Jesus, I mean, if I were Jesus and I walk up to these two disciples who are walking away from Jerusalem, downcast, fearful, depressed, I'd be like, hey, it's me. I rose from the dead. Like, it's me. But that's not what he does. Jesus goes up to them. He says, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> weird, weird, right? And, 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 and they're, like, they're like annoyed. They're like, who, who is this guy? You know, and they say, 
I mean, have you not heard? I mean, are you, are you the only one who has not seen or heard anything that's happened in Jerusalem? Have you been living under a rock? And you would think, Jesus, at this point, I mean, if I were Jesus, this is where I would lay the smack down. This is where I give them the answer. And yet he says, what things? <laughs> he keeps asking and asking and asking. And I think Jesus is on to something. Jesus knows that answers create distance. Questions draw people close. Answers create distance. Questions draw people close. Uh, if you're married here um, and... Uh, you know, it's been a tough season. You're not alone. A lot of married people have had, uh, tough, uh, have had a tough season during this pandemic, but I'm going to give you a pro tip if your marriage is struggling. Okay, I'm going to save your marriage in the next three minutes. Um, and the next time uh, you have the temptation, like, you know, the, the longer you've been married, the more likely you are to, you, you know, you love, like, giving statements, right? You love having the answer to your spouse's problems, Right? Pro tip, the next time you feel the temptation to give a statement or an answer, try asking a question. I guarantee you will change everything. Um, you know, and I, I can only say this because obviously I'm the worst at this. You know, I'm a failure at this. Um, you know, my wife comes home and she says, Jason, I hate my job. You know, uh, my natural inclination at that point is to give one of three statements, okay? Depending on how my day is going, and, uh, you know, depending how, you know, how, how willing I am to, to get into the fire, you know, that day. Okay, so she'll say, um, Jason, I hate my job. So statement one, like level one, is like, told you you shouldn't have taken that job, right? <laughs> um, conversation usually over at that point, you know. Uh, if I'm, you know, feeling pretty tired, extra exhausted, she comes in, she says, ah, long day hate my job, I'll say, you should be grateful you have a job, right? <laughs> Oof, that's like, that's level two, uh, you know, that's at, at least one night on the couch there. Um, if, I'm, if I'm just like not having it that day, she comes in, she says, I hate my job, I say, just quit. All right, that's the worst one. Um, that, you know, I'll be sleeping on the couch for, for about a week there. And... Um, I realize that what she needs in that moment isn't a statement. It's not an answer. What she needs in that moment are questions. I hate my job. Why do you hate your job? Well, you know, I've been going through this stuff with my coworkers. They're blaming for me for things that weren't even a part of my job description. Oh, well, is there anything management can do about it? And now we're talking. We're having a conversation. Because you see, answers create distance, questions draw you close. What my wife needs in that moment is not more certainty. What she needs is curiosity. And so if you're here today and you're asking questions and you're curious, keep asking. Curiosity means you're hungry. Curiosity means you actually care. There is no way we could worship a God, no, no way we could say we worship a God who is transcendent and otherworldly and not have questions. If there ever comes a point where we could say we know everything there is to know about God, your God is either too small or you haven't experienced enough of life. Now, if you're a leader and you happen to be walking with someone in their doubt, someone who is asking questions, please allow them to keep asking them. 
Don't discourage the questions. We need to create a safe space for the church. We need the church to be a place where people can say, you know what? Is it wrong that I have a problem with this? Can you help me? Because I, I don't know if, if what I'm reading here is actually correct. I, I'm struggling with this. And we need the church to be a safe space for people to stay curious. Okay? So number one, doubt with curiosity. Number two, doubt with community. Uh, you know, one of the details I love about this story is that Luke makes it a point multiple times to say they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And it was in the midst of their conversation with one another that Jesus shows up. Like they were talking with each other, and that's when Jesus shows up. And I can tell you as somebody who's gone through my own process of deconstruction, it is a very lonely place to be. Because sometimes you start asking these questions and you look around at your church and you see everyone else getting along just fine, God making perfect sense to them. They're having these like mountaintop moments and here you are in the valley of your doubt and it's very isolating. And what's sad is that the tendency in those moments is to isolate yourselves even more because you're afraid that if I'm honest with these doubts and if I'm honest with these questions, I'm gonna be condemned. I'm gonna be shamed. I'm not gonna be welcomed here. But I'm going to tell you today, if you're doubting, don't doubt alone. That's the worst thing you can do, to doubt alone. If you are a leader, again, and if you are walking with someone uh, who is going through these doubts, please know that what they need in that moment is not the right answers. What they need is just for someone to sit with them in the messiness of the process. What they need is the assurance that they will not be abandoned no matter how many things they have questions about. That they will not be abandoned by this community. They will not be aban abandoned by you if they express these doubts freely and openly. And what I found is that a lot of times when people are willing to be vulnerable with their doubts with other people, what you'll usually hear is, oh my goodness, I'm not the only one. Me too. I've always wondered about that. That part never made sense to me. Can we investigate that together? Doubt with community, okay? So number one, doubt with curiosity. Two, doubt with community. And finally, doubt with confidence. Uh, this feels like an oxymoron, right? Because how do you doubt confidently? doesn't make any sense. It feels like they contradict each other. And I'm going to tell you this. You can only doubt with confidence when you are 100% sure that no matter how far down the rabbit hole you go, no matter how many borderline heretical thoughts you entertain, no matter how far you walk away from Jesus, that nothing will separate you from his love. Nothing. You know what the most profound thing I think about this story is? is that Jesus walks with his disciples as they're walking away from him. Let me say that again. The most profound thing about this story is that Jesus walks with his disciples as they're walking away from him. And even when, Je when, when they invite Jesus to stay with them, they still don't know who he is. They think they're doing Jesus a favor. And so when he agrees, he comes in. You know what the first thing he does is? It says in verse 30, it says that when Jesus was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, broke it, and began 
to give it to them. He's supposed to be the guest in this house, and yet he's the one doing the feeding. This is our God. What an amazing God is this. The beauty of the gospel is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is why the cross of Jesus Christ is so earth-shattering. The cross of Jesus Christ is the great deconstruction. It is the place where every preconceived notion about God came completely undone. Do you know why, why, why Jesus was all alone at the end of his life? Why even though he had multitudes following him, watching him heal the sick, giving blind sight, feeding the 5,000, casting out demons, why was it that at the end of his life, Jesus was all alone? It's because everyone said, that isn't who I thought the Messiah was going to be. It's where is the Messiah that we expected? Where is the Messiah we've been waiting for? The Messiah that would overthrow the Roman Empire, the Messiah that would vanquish all of his enemies. Who is this man that hangs on a cross, bruised, beaten, and scorned by men? Who is this? This isn't what we had hoped. We wanted him to destroy our enemies, and yet here he is, dying for the very people who put him there. The beginning of this service, we, we, taught, we um, heard 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. There is no theological construct that can hold the scandalous beauty of the cross. It's the picture of a God who pursues us even when we stop pursuing him. It's a picture of a God who feeds us when we can't feed ourselves. It's a picture of a God who became one of us to save us. It's otherworldly. We can't understand it. You know, my uh, kids are in that stage. Um, they're six and four, almost four, and uh, they're asking all the why questions, okay? Very annoying as a parent, okay? Um, when I drop them off at daycare or school, they're like, why are you dropping us off? I'm like, because I have to work. They're like, why do you have to work? Because I say, because daddy has to make money. They're like, why do you have to make money? So that daddy can feed you. Why do you feed us? I say, because daddy loves you. And usually, that's where the conversation ends. Because you realize that even in their small feeble minds, there is a lot they don't know. But there is one thing they do know, that they're loved. And at the end of the day, that's all that they need. That's all that matters. Friends, all of us will find ourselves at some point wandering in the wilderness of our doubt. If it's not already happening right now in your own heart, it will happen at some point in your life. It's a part of living in a broken world. Things won't make sense to you. For some of us, it will be because of a challenging season in our lives. For some of us, it will be because of Christians who inflict very real pain and abuse on us. For some of us, it will be because of churches who do not practice and preach the gospel as we know it. But let me just say this. When that time comes, whatever may cause that deconstruction, 
because something will. May you and I know that above all things, we are loved. We are so deeply loved. And may we cling to the cross in that moment because there will be a lot that we don't know. There will be a lot that doesn't make sense, but may we cling to the cross knowing that no matter what happens, Jesus will not leave us in the valley of our doubts, but Jesus will carry us to the other side. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, this year has been so challenging. Uh, we've seen things that we can't unsee now. Uh, we've experienced so much grief and death and loss, and, and many of us are asking hard questions uh, about whether or not this God that we've been handed is real or whether or not we can actually believe that, that you're good. And I pray for everyone uh, who finds themselves in the valley of their doubt in this moment. God, I don't necessarily pray that they would have all the answers, but even in this moment of doubt, I pray that they would know that you are near, that you are a God who even walks with us while we walk away from you. And I pray that in this moment, in their hearts, you would plant in them the reality and the beauty of the cross, which is our assurance that you will never leave us or forsake us, which is our assurance that though we may never understand you, there is one thing we do know, that we're loved, we're accepted, we're valued. God, I pray that Living Hope and all the churches um, would become safe spaces for us to process our doubt in community, that we would see doubt not as something to be avoided, but as the very pathways by which we find you. So we thank you uh, for this poignant word today. We give you all the praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey y'all, my name is Barnabas Piper. It is a pleasure to share with you today, really an honor to be asked. Um, I've been asked to share a little bit of my story of coming to faith, of dealing with some pretty significant questions of doubt, um, of growing up in the church and navigating all of that. So that's what I want to do. Before I get to that, though, just let me introduce myself a little bit so that you know who you're talking with. Uh, my wife, Lauren, and I live in the Nashville area, just in the north suburbs of Nashville, Tennessee. Um, I have two daughters who are uh, in middle school and high school, so that brings with it all of the fun of swim and dance and, uh, and then all of the adolescent travails as well. It's, but it's, it's really a joy, they're awesome kids. Um, I serve at Emmanuel Nashville as an assistant pastor overseeing our community groups, discipleship groups, doing some teaching, different things there. And then I do some writing and some podcasting on the side. So that's, uh, that's a little bit about me, um, but my story. Let me, let me just share with you what God has done in my life over the last 38 plus years. So I was born in 1983 uh, into the home of John Piper. Some of you may know who that is. That's my dad. And uh, he had been a pastor for about three years at that point when I was born. So I was a pastor's kid for 30 years. That's a pretty defining aspect of my life. And with it came all sorts of pressures and challenges and difficulties 
but also a ton of joys. I had a pretty good relationship with the church growing up. My best friends were through the church. It really was a familial thing for me. I, I took a lot of joy in being at church. But some of the significant challenges there, especially as a pastor's kid, were the pressures put on me to believe certain things, to have certain answers, to be, to be kind of the first in line to answer difficult theological questions, as well as the behavioral standards. You know, you're a pastor's kid, you can't do that. The, the sense of all eyes on me. And what that did was create a context for me where I didn't feel like I could take my questions anywhere. Um, I didn't even always know what my questions were because I was so certain of what I was supposed to believe and I just absorbed it. I was really good at collecting knowledge and theology and, and Bible memory and all of these things so that I had a really good kind of structure and construct of faith. What is it supposed to look like? What do I, what do I know? Um, but not a real keen sense of who I was in Christ. So again, this, this didn't even really hit me at that point. I couldn't have articulated this as a child or as an adolescent. Um, I, just, I just lived it. I lived the life of, I know the answers. I'm ready, I'm ready with, a, with a Bible verse. I'm doing all of the appropriate church things. And I didn't resent any of it. That's the thing. I resented when people challenged me or when they told me I couldn't do things or when the, the, the behavioral pressures but for the most part, I, I just sort of followed along in the stream of thought into which I was born, which is pretty normal for a church kid, a kid who, who's grown up in, in Christianity. You just, you just sort of accept it, <clears throat> which is funny because I challenged everything I was ever told about everything. I just, I've always been a, yeah, but we'll prove it kind of person. That's, that's my mentality. Um, and for some reason with Christianity, I wasn't quite so so much that way. And I think it had something to do with not wanting to challenge the authority of my parents and not wanting to challenge my dad's position as pastor. Because to challenge your dad's position as pastor would be to challenge God's call on his life. So saying, I don't know what I believe, or I'm not sure about that, or what does this mean, sounds a little bit like going up against God in some ways. So that's, I think underneath it all, I, I wrestled with a little bit of that. But again, hard to articulate as a, as a 12 year old or an 18 year old. And then I left home at 18 and went to a Christian college. I went to Wheaton College in Illinois and had a really wonderful four years. But again, it was this, it was this structure of theological training. Um, I, was a, I was a theology major. That's what I studied in, uh, in my undergrad. And I thrived in it. I was really good at it. Um, I was bad at all my other classes, but I was good at theology. And, uh, and and a pretty good context of Christian friendship and really just a safe structure for a Christian kid. I wasn't being challenged. I wasn't being, I wasn't having my faith challenged, I should say. Uh, nobody was pushing back against, well, why do you believe that? How do you believe that? What does that really mean? Um, and during this time, I was still really connected to the church. So one of the first things I did when I got to college was plug into a local church. That was a really meaningful thing to me and something that I was committed to. So I served with youth group and, um, my crisis of faith did not come until a couple years after college. So shortly after college, I got married. Shortly after that, we had our first daughter. And uh, I had a good job with a publishing company. I was thriving. I was, I was advancing. But because I didn't have a rooted faith in Jesus Christ, I just had structures. I had... I was a believer, I was a follower, but I didn't have a profound, deep, meaningful 
relationship with Christ. It meant that I was, I had some holes in my life that needed to be filled up. The kind of things that only Christ can fill, the kind of things you base your life on, I didn't have. So my experience has been that when people have a crisis of faith, it's usually either an outside trial, suffering, or a significant loss, or something like that, or an internal desire to do something that God says not to do. You know, who do you want to sleep with? Uh, how you want to use your money, what do you want to do with your time, things that you, you want to own those things rather than letting the Lord lead you in those things. That's where my crisis of faith came from. It wasn't from an outside uh, crisis or trial as much as it was in, inside. I wanted, I wanted to be richer than I was. I wanted to be more advanced than I was. I wanted to be more comfortable than I was. And so that meant that I I held back things from God and I began to cut corners at work and I began to steal from the company and I began to, to essentially lie and cheat to get ahead because I wasn't content with what God had for me. Well, obviously that didn't line up with the Christian upbringing I had. And, and the thing is, it was a pretty segmented part of my life because in the rest of life, I was still serving in church and I was still helping lead a youth group and I was still teaching on occasion and leading ministry trips and things like that. And so there was, there was some significant hypocrisy in my life uh, for those couple years in my mid-20s until it all came crashing down. A couple elders at our church were in management at this company and... They discovered the corners that I've been cutting in my dishonesty and they were forced to fire me. But because they were elders at my church, they were also able to bring me under their care in the church. And when I say under their care, that's not a euphemism. They genuinely came around me and said, what does it look like to see you to a place of restoration? That was their goal. Well, that also confronted me with a situation where all of these things that I had claimed to believe, all of these structures of faith, this theological structure, these truths that I had been able to argue for and articulate so well, were now in a pile of rubble on the floor around me. What did I really believe? Who was I really? Uh, all of these things that I had that I'd sort of clung to, I realized were borrowed. That wasn't my structure. That wasn't a thing that God had had built up in me as much as that I had been handed. And that didn't necessarily make it false, but it meant that I didn't know what was true. I, I just wasn't sure. And so I had to start going through the difficult and rigorous process of deciding what is it that I believe? Who is Jesus Christ really? How much faith can I put in the words of God and scripture? What do I turn to when I don't know? Is God really speaking through his word? And those were, those, were the, those were the questions of doubt that I faced. So it wasn't questions of, is God real? I, I never lost, I never, I never questioned the reality of God, but I didn't really know who he was or what he thought about me or how he communicated to me. I, I, was, I knew what I'd been told, but now I had to question, is it, is it really true? Is it really real? I never really questioned whether or not the Bible was the word of God even. Um, I had studied enough to know that the, the historical background of scripture is reliable. But it didn't speak to me prior to that in the same way. It wasn't, an, it wasn't as Hebrews says, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword from my experience. Well, why? 
probably because I had a really hard heart and I was so arrogant that I wasn't letting God speak to me. So over the course of about a year, these two elders walked faithfully with me through a process of deconstructing my, my spiritual upbringing. And that does not mean discarding it. It means pulling it apart to go, how, what, what of this is necessary? What of this is real? What of this is good? And the amazing thing was that they were not afraid of those questions. They weren't, they didn't sort of call time out and go, whoa, 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 you, you can't ask God that question. You can't. They just kept pointing me faithfully to say, well, scripture is the way in which God speaks. Go back to it. What is, what is it that God has to say? And one of the most pivotal points was when one of those two elders, a man named Wayne, just sort of paused one day when we were meeting and he said, Barnabas, this is going to be really hard for you because of your upbringing. Uh, as a church kid, as a pastor's kid, as like the Sunday school whiz kid. But you need to try to set aside everything you think you know about the Bible. Everything you think you know about Jesus Christ. All the lessons that you've learned, all the flannel graphs you saw, all the Bible trivia, all the Bible memory. He said, those aren't bad things, but right now they're, they're confusing the issue because you think you know answers. You need to set that stuff aside and you need to start reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and see if you can encounter a real Jesus. Who is Jesus? That's the question you need to ask. And I was like, all right, fine. I've read the Gospels 15 times. I'll do it again. And so that was my attitude going in, just kind of a rolling eyes, fine, I'll do this. And I read all of Matthew with that attitude, and I was like, yes, Sermon on the Mount, yes, Miracle, yes, whatever, I've seen all this before, I know all this stuff. That was my attitude, I know all this stuff. And I got to Mark, and it started the same way. We've got walking on water, and we've got feeding the 5,000, we've got raising a dead girl. The fact that I could roll my eyes that Jesus raising a dead girl to life tells you the state of my heart, but that's where I was. And then I got to Matthew 9, and it's the story of Jesus coming down off the Mount of Transfiguration um, and encountering his disciples with a father whose son is demon-possessed. And the father has tried everything and he can't help his son, and he comes to Jesus and he says, if you can, would you help? And Jesus says, if you can. Anything is possible for the one who believes. And the Father's response was the key that God used to begin to unlock my heart to figure out what does it mean to have a real Christian faith. And his response was, I believe, help my unbelief. And it wasn't like a lightning strike. I didn't read that verse and go, whoa, it all makes sense. I read it and it and it moved me by degrees, just an adjustment towards, wait a minute. This man just looked Jesus in the face and said, help my unbelief. But he also said, I believe. That sounds like a contradiction. And what I realized that Christianity is, is a constant struggle of having convictions and faith and also needing help with our doubts, with the things that we don't know and the things that we don't understand. And what did that father do? He brought them directly to Jesus. We're going to pull up, um, post the full testimony um, 